Hello, I'm Magnus Oman, and welcome to another edition of Life and Times of Leading Cardiologists. We were fortunate to have a cardiothoracic surgeon. We had a few of these maybe over the years, but we haven't really had one uh, lately. So I'm very honored to have Dr. Robert Guyton, who's a professor of surgery at Emory, uh, was the chief of cardiothoracic surgery there. But more importantly, he was very instrumental in uh, developing the guidelines for revascularization a number of years ago that really has shaped how we practice medicine. So welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Magnus. Now, your family is, depending on your persuasion, either the Bush or the Kennedys of medicine, <laughs> uh, in the sense that you, uh, your father uh, wrote a very famous uh, textbook of physiology, guidance, that I read when I was uh, a medical student. Tell us, where exactly did you grow up? I grew up in uh, uh, Mississippi. My uh, father was a surgical resident at the Massachusetts General Hospital and contracted polio in 1946. Uh, and I was born on the eighth floor of the hospital. He was on the 12th floor in the polio ward at the time with ascending paralysis. The paralysis ended at his left shoulder, which meant he did not need to go on the heart-lung machine, which would have been a 70% mortality. Then we moved to Warm Springs, Georgia for rehabilitation moved back to the family home in Mississippi. My father, when I spoke to him about this, really was, doesn't, did not express bitterness. He said it, it brought me back to physiology. It brought him back to research. Uh, and he said that he'd had a great life. The other really interesting perspective is that when I was 18, someone asked me, what's it like to have a disabled father? And I said, what? I never in my life till that point thought of my father as disabled. I thought of him as a talented, incredibly productive person and never thought of him as a disabled person. I can speak for the hundreds of thousands who read the textbook. They would never have guessed it. It is an incredible textbook. Where in the pecking order of the family are you? It's interesting you use the words pecking order because I think my parents raised us on a little sibling rivalry. <laughs> there are 10 of us all in medicine and I'm not sure we can... Uh, uh, more than two or three of us can live in the same state. <laughs> Otherwise, we, we do enjoy each other. And we uh, uh, first couple of us went into medicine. And my father always felt that, that there were all kinds of opportunities in medicine, no matter whether you want to see patients or not see patients. But there were all kinds of intellectual uh, possibilities. And that as far as being a service to society, medicine really offered incredible opportunities that were relatively free of, uh, you know, political issues and, and, and other conflicting issues, that you could really be a, a servant to society and medicine in uh, a way that wasn't possible in other so, fields. So, so I wasn't far off by, by calling this the Kennedy Bush uh, medicine. <laughs> I didn't actually know that all your siblings were in medicine. So, so, so which order are you in? The I'm the second child. Okay. Uh, and uh, the, there's uh, 23 years between the oldest and the youngest. You said you had a competitive en environment. How much of that contributed to this goal of going into medicine? I think that uh, uh, we saw my father have great uh, esteem from the community, yet at the same time he was always home for dinner at 5 o'clock, uh, uh, then, but then would work on his book you know, from 
7 to 8 o'clock or 7 to 10 o'clock at night in the living room with five or six children crawling around his feet. But uh, And we saw how much he enjoyed his work. And so I think that uh, led us to feel like that this is something that uh, is is attractive and appropriate for us. And we were uh, always around medicine when I would finish uh, playing tennis after school. Uh, in high school, I would go to my father's office and drive home with him, uh, watch uh, things tinkering around in the laboratory and so forth. But it went actually back to my grandfather was an eye, ear, nose, and throat physician in Oxford, Mississippi, where we lived before the medical school moved to Jackson. And about age four or five, I would go to his office and watch him uh, see patients. And I actually remember him uh, cleaning somebody's glass eye once. And of course, at age four, I went back and tried to figure out how, I could, get, your... how I could get that thing out. <laughs> it was a little painful. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't succeed. So, uh, so, so what, what did your mother do? Uh, my mother was a unique and special person. Uh, her father was dean of the Yale Divinity School for 27 years. And then uh, uh, in his retirement, when he was 65, he was chair of the uh, committee uh, for the uh, National Council of Churches that wrote the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. So when we were growing up in uh, vacation in Sunapee, New Hampshire, we would hear my uh, grandfather and grandmother discussing what words should be used in a certain part of the Bible. Between medicine and divinity, I mean, that is a very unique combination. It was. Did any of the children get to sort of the, the ability to preach? I think that's uh, penetrated all of us, I think, in our public uh, speaking. And I think my father's writing has also been passed along. But I think that, uh, that Johnny, the brother younger than me, uh, particularly has embraced has embraced uh, that particular activity. So, uh, so let's run, have a quick run through. The oldest brother is what area of medicine? The David is an ophthalmologist at Johns Hopkins in squint and strabismus surgery, operating on those little tiny eye muscles. Right, the Wilmer Eye Center. Right? Yes, yeah. And uh, John is at, at Duke. Steve is uh, in Seattle, is a cardiac surgeon. Uh, the uh, Next is Kathy, who's uh, an internist in uh, Pittsburgh, married to a radiation oncologist. And Jeannie is a rheumatologist, has moved back to Oxford, Mississippi. She's married to the most interesting spouse of all, who's a history professor at the University of Mississippi. And so he's the one that we all prefer to talk to when we get together. <laughs> and then, and then uh, 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 Douglas uh, is an anesthesiologist and then another orthopedic surgeon. Uh, Jimmy at Campbell's Clinic in Memphis, and then uh, Tom is an anesthesiologist in Memphis, and Greg is a foot and ankle surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland. It's very grounded in the physiology, most of them. Yes, I think most of us uh, used Daddy's textbook in <laughs> medical school. The uh, physiology professors wanted me to use Ruin Patton or something <laughs> else, and Ruin Patton presents five different ways that things might work in the body. My father's textbook presents one way that works in the body, yes, yes. and that was much more uh, suitable for medical students, so I studied my father's book. You finished high school in Mississippi, and right. where do you go next? Seven of the eight brothers went to the University of Mississippi. It was partly financial. It was uh, cost $115 per semester. We lived with my grandfather in Oxford, Mississippi, so that's one way that you send 10 children to college. Uh, my uh, two sisters went to Radcliffe, at, at, yeah. called Radcliffe at the time, and then uh, the youngest brother went, went to Vanderbilt. 
all eight brothers uh, went to Harvard Medical School, and and the two sisters, one went to Miami in a PhD to MD program, and, and Jeannie went to Duke. It's incredible pedigree there. Now, did you all, did you feel the pressure going into medicine? I was captured by it very early mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, you know, going to my grandfather's office, seeing how uh, the patient's revered him, patients sometimes waiting, you know, six or seven hours to see him, seeing how he treated all people, black and white, the same. Yes. And and looking back at his records from the Depression, when he might be paid with a, a quart of stew or a couple of rabbits for his services. Yes. Uh, and and I just thought, well, this this really is neat. And then I got captured, I think, by surgery uh, in that growing up, we all worked in the shop. <clears throat> My father was an inventor, invented a number of medical instruments. In the summer, we would work uh, from eight to noon on on, uh, de- on actually producing medical instruments that he sold for measuring the AV oxygen difference. Uh, actually, some of his uh, machines were used in the early astronauts to measure their continuous cardiac output as they did as they did various things. And, and we, the children, actually built those in the shop. Harvard back then was very different from Mississippi. How did that move feel, or from Oxford, Mississippi in particular? Uh, which years were you at, actually, Harvard? I was uh, at Harvard from uh, 67 to 71. This was right... Uh, very rebellious time in, in Oxford, Mississippi, particularly. Well, it was a rebellious time in the Northeast in particular. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it was a culture shock for me. The uh, cultural liberation uh, had had not fully penetrated the University of Mississippi. Yes. Uh, while other people were protesting, uh, there was a statement that the University of Mississippi was a hotbed of apathy at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that, I think that uh, we, I was also at the University of Mississippi soon after it was integrated, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that was a very positive uh, phase for the University of Mississippi, that, that things were uh, handled well over that five to ten year period. And I think that the uh, institution uh, really weathered that uh, uh, and, and thrived and became stronger because of, because of that, uh, that progress. Was there any mentor along the way, besides obviously the shadow of your father in all of this? I think the uh, pivotal person was uh, uh, Willard Daggett, who was a surgeon at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, Dr. Daggett uh, was uh, from Middle America. Uh, was uh, a in the in the surgical group and was the most prominent research individual in the group. I went to Dr. Austin, the chief of surgery at the Mass General, and expressed to him my interest in surgery and cardiac surgery. And he referred me to Dr. Daggett. So in medical school, I began working in uh, Dr. Daggett's laboratory in the summer. Uh, worked on a research project that led to graduation with uh, with uh, a focus in a special field mm-hmm. uh, from Harvard and an, an award from the Mass Medical Society for the best research by a medical student uh, in that year in, in Massachusetts. My goodness. And so I, I 
thought about taking an extra year to get a, a, a doctorate or a, at least a master's in in uh, in physiology, but uh, decided to go straight on to, into surgery. So, so he, so you already declared your interest with surgery or cardiothoracic surgery very early on. Um, where do you, did you stay on then at uh, Mass General, or did you actually, or Harvard? I presume it was Harvard. I, I uh, stayed at the Mass General Hospital. Yeah. Uh, I uh, uh, when I was an intern there, I met uh, Douglas Barrett, who was sub- subsequently chief at in Iowa, and he had just come back from NIH and worked with Dr. Morrow, and this was uh, uh, you know somewhat serendipitous, but uh, it was a, a positive positive thing. This actually happened when I was a medical student, and he was short a resident on the cardiac uh, service, and so as a, as a senior medical student, I substituted for a resident on the cardiac service. <laughs> Talk about early graduation. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, the learning curve is pretty fast yes. when you step in like that. <laughs> you had a family along the way here? Yes, I uh, uh, was married and had uh, uh, four children. Uh, during my uh, medical school days and and uh, oh so in and residency, but that's over a ten year ten year period, right? Between so seventy and is 80. your wife from Mississippi or this my uh, uh, my first wife and I are separated after twenty two years. Yeah. I uh, remarried, uh-huh. adopted Beth's two children, uh-huh. and we have two children now. So we have a total of eight children oh, uh, between the the blended family and 15 grandchildren now. How did it feel to switch to becoming an attending? I was eager to come back toward the south. Yeah. I had roots in the south and uh, uh, I asked my uh, wife what would keep her in Massachusetts because they had offered a position to me in Boston and she said she needed an electric driveway which they didn't have at the time. (laughs) But I I, uh, knew of Emory and two of my uh, colleagues Joe Craver and Willis Williams had come to Emory to work Uh and I uh, uh, Dr. Hatcher at Emory was looking for somebody to start a research laboratory. I actually uh, was fortunate with Dr. Daggett uh, who was on the uh, study section at the time to be able to write an R01 and take an R01 with me to Emory and start a research laboratory. So which year did you actually start uh, that Emory then? In 1980. 1980. And I started on uh, July 1st. Uh, I had had trained with Dr. Castaneda at Boston Children's Hospital as well as at the Mass General Hospital. And so my first few years were, were, had a heavy congenital cardiac focus. At uh-huh. uh, 12.30 a.m. on January 1st, I was in the operating room with Dr. Willis Williams <laughs> doing my first operation. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and it was a Waterston shunt, which is, prob- which is the last Waterston shunt that was ever done at Emory. So you have to tell, the, tell us, what is a Waterston shunt? That's a, a connection between the right pulmonary artery and the aorta. Oh, it's so. a fairly large shunt yes. that you have to be careful not to make too large. So, uh, so you were at Emory at the time when this fellow Andreas Grunzig showed up. That must have been quite a... Uh, change. It was very exciting, and I think that Dr. Hatcher at the time was the head of the Emory Clinic, and even as a cardiac surgeon, you have to give him great credit for understanding how important Dr. Grunzig was. 
and Emory was able to compete with the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, Dr. Grunzig came to this country to work at Emory. Uh, there were some politics involved. You remember that Jimmy Carter was president at the yes, time, and yes. Griffin Bell was the attorney general. Yes. And some of those things impacted the ability of Dr. Grunzig to come to this country as a radiology resident, never take an examination of any sort, and start to protect, practice medicine in the United States. I think that's maybe a piece of history that is not well known, actually. Now, looking back at your career, is there anything that you would have done differently? It sounds like an almost like a dream journey. It, it's been a, just a fantastic journey, and I think that, that the, uh, you know, the, like everybody's pathway, you prepare yourself, and then when the forks in the road come, you need to choose which way you're going to go, because I began uh, doing congenital and adult surgery, realized that if I were going to be a competitive congenital surgery, I needed to do it full-time, which probably meant giving up the lab, which was a big part of my life as well, and so chose after five years to uh, be an adult surgeon and continue the laboratory work. Uh, but uh, and, and I think that was the right decision. I think that uh, uh, the pathway at Emory was, was great. I had great support from Dr. Hatcher and superior colleagues, and I think that we all really enjoyed teaching. We had some fantastic residents. I've been involved in the teaching of now about 140 residents, and most of them are practicing cardiac surgeons, so we have about 4% of the national cardiac surgeons are our, our graduates, and, well, and they're, they're still an extended family, and I think that's been, as much as anything else, the, uh, the joy that I've gotten out of my uh, uh, pathway is those people. So I have two final questions here, really. First of all, did any of your children actually go into medicine? After, after this track record, one would expect at least one or two. There are now 36 grandchildren from my, uh, grand, from my father, and there are, I think, four in medicine. And none from my side. I am concerned that the time that I spent in the hospital and the time that I spent away from the family may have been an important part of that, of that decision for them. The final question is, you have seen a lot of change in surgery and cardiothoracic surgery over the years. What do you think are the most important things that you observed? Well, I think that, that cardiac surgery is uh, very special in that, in that we work hard, we develop unique skills over a long period of time, and then it's applied patient by patient to uh, patient benefit. And very much in cardiac surgery, we take people who are disabled and we enable them. They go back substantially to a, uh, a very uh, good life, uh, ability to do things. There's so many other fields in medicine when you're just helping people along, restoring them partially. Uh, but in cardiac surgery, there's a, a, a great patient benefit that's almost palpable. It's also a team effort that uh, working with other people is very rewarding from the nurses to the technicians to the, uh, to the OR OR staff and the anesthesia, anesthesia team. So I think that that, uh, to me, is, has been uh, the great reward of cardiac surgery. And I think that it still remains very uh, special to me as a, as a profession as we now begin to embrace innovation and uh, retool ourselves to uh, meet the, the challenges ahead. 
And I think that we've done a good job of it. We struggled a little bit in the early 2000s when we were grieving the loss of coronary bypass. But I think that uh, we've really overcome that and we're really uh, on a very positive pathway forward uh, in cardiac surgery. The reality is that you have been very much part of a field that really changed a lot in the, in the face of medicine. All your residents, 4% of the U- U.S. cardiothoracic surgery population, that is a big step forward. So I want to thank you for uh, sharing your life with us. It's been terrific to hear. So thank you. Thank you so much, Magnus. And I want to thank you, the audience, to listening to this wonderful story. Thank you.